Well, good evening. Nice to see you all tonight. Good to be back with you tonight. Thank you for uh, the warm welcome always and for, um, for the uh, music, the, the good music, the really wonderful singing and, and uh, for the wonderful food tonight too. Thank you for all of that. Um, we are looking at the four directions of the life of Jesus, and I am saying to you again and again that those um, directions are uh, part of the life that he gives to you and me. So up and out and down and in, up in love for God, out in love for our neighbor, and um, down, we're going to get to that tonight, uh, down in renunciation, letting go of our old life, and in to give us... Uh, uh, a new heart and uh, attentiveness to our heart to to help us tend our hearts. Um, I went on a sabbatical back in 2014, and one of the things that I wanted to do in my sabbatical was to take a look at discipleship, a fresh look at discipleship. I've always been very interested in and committed to discipleship in the parishes where I've served. And um, I've noticed over the years that I didn't think we were doing all that well in, um, in discipleship, that we were losing a lot of people to the culture, um, and uh, among them our kids, so uh, our, our, our kids grow up, and uh, if they grow up in good churches like this church, uh, about uh, 75 or 80% of our kids walk away from their faith during their college years. And that's a pretty steady statistic these days. Um, and you wonder why. What, what is going on with that? Why would that happen? Um, and uh, we're concerned about that. You're concerned about that. Um, everybody wants to know why that's happened. Part of the answer is discipleship, how we do discipleship. Because I, I felt that there must be something missing from how we're doing discipleship in America. So for... Uh, a decade and a half now, um, that's been a concern to try and build better discipleship programs. And, and in 2014, what I did was I decided to get outside my culture, uh, our culture, and to go back to the early church between the years 250 and 500, 550, somewhere in there. Uh, those centuries were formative in the life of the Christian church, uh, hugely influential, and um, and they had all of the components of our modern world. Uh, ancient Rome was crashing, uh, so the culture around the Christians was falling apart. Uh, in the first part of that section, Christianity was illegal. In the last part of those centuries, Christianity was very legal. And um, lots of people came into the church. Some 30 million people came into the church over a period of about 300 years. That is a rather astounding rate of growth. Um, and, uh, and then they were trying to make disciples out of them. And I wanted to go back and look at how they did it. So when I went back to the early church, uh, did a lot of reading during my sabbatical and, and made some adjustments in my lifestyle, I wanted to live like they lived as well. Um, like a man like me would live in a time like that. So I'm a married pastor. I'm a married priest. I'm not going to be a monk. Uh, and and uh, that was figured out a long time ago in my life. Uh, there was a possibility once upon a time, and then I met Becca. And um, so I'm, I'm a married man, and I wanted to live like they would live. And so I, I adopted a lifestyle during my sabbatical months that was similar in some important ways, and, and then started reading. And um, 
read and read and read and read, and I noticed that there were two things that were very dominant in early Christian discipleship that were very missing in modern discipleship. And those two things are what I now call the down direction and the in direction. And we're going to do the down direction today and the in direction in a week. And both of those, I think, once we get into them, you're going to say, well, of course. Um, that's right there in the middle of the teaching of Jesus and the life of Jesus and the life of the early Christian church all the way through the New Testament. And then, and then you might step back and say, but you know, to be honest about it, um, I really don't know discipleship programs that do this very much. And I wonder why that is. I just wonder why that is. I have an idea or two on that. You might have better ideas on that, but you'll see what I, uh, I mean soon enough. So the down direction we're doing tonight is that you renounce yourself. You lose your life in order to find your life. You let things go. You put yourself last. You think about others more highly than you think about yourself. You make repentance a life habit. You learn to humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. My favorite phrase for it, I mentioned this to you before, is that you get over yourself. It's just a good thing to get over ourselves. We're, we're so incessantly self-absorbed. It's a wonderful thing to be delivered from being so self-absorbed. Jesus lived a life that was a down-direction life. So he renounced himself. He emptied himself. He abandoned his privilege and position. He became a servant. He poured himself out, all the way out, all the way to the cross, to death on the cross. That was the down direction in Jesus' life. You cannot miss the down direction in the life of Jesus. So he gives us his life. His life has built into it this down direction. That's the life he gives us when he gives us a new life. So his disciples lived that kind of life. His apostles lived that kind of life. And so do people like you and I. The Holy Spirit will reliably move you in the down direction, just like the up direction and the out direction. So I want to cover the down direction with you tonight, and I want to cover it under three headings, getting over yourself, getting over your badness, and then getting over your goodness. I want to talk to you about each one of those tonight. And by the way, this is, um, this is a night guaranteed to offend you. I'll get you somewhere in one of those three directions. I promise you. Everybody will walk out of here really sufficiently offended tonight by what I'm, what I'm bringing to you. So the first part is getting over yourself. And uh, they link to the, these words uh, that Jesus, um, I think some of the most challenging words he ever spoke, Matthew 16, 25, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. Those are words that have a lot to say to modern people, I think, like us. So Jesus assumes, when he says words like this, that people are holding on to their lives tightly. And we live in a culture that's holding on really tightly um, to our lives, like it's something valuable, like it's something that's at risk of being lost, maybe. When Jesus says people hold on to their lives, the word he used for your life there is, is the word psyche, from which we get psychology. Maybe you could translate it the real you, or the life you've always been looking for. Eugene Peterson in the message translates it, your true self. If you want to find your true self, Jesus says, he has something to say to us. Now, almost everybody in America seems to want to find their true self. 
And then Jesus comes with these startling words that the way to find your true self is to lose your life, give up your life, let go of your wants and your preferences and your desires and your dreams. Get rid of yourself. I mean, his words make you think like that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a famous German theologian, martyred under the Nazis in World War II, wrote a book in 1937 uh, called The Cost of Discipleship. It's a very famous, very good book on discipleship. He summed up this passage with these words. When Jesus Christ calls us, he bids us come and die. Now, I thought of doing an altar call around this tonight, you know, so anybody who wants to come and die, just line up right here, you know, and um, the problem is that nobody gets in that line. I mean, who does get in that line? It's, it's, nobody got in the line back then, because when he, when he talked like this about picking up your cross, everybody understood what a cross was back in those days. A cross was one of the um, most brutal devices for killing a person that uh, any, any country has ever come up with. It is exceedingly brutal. And every, every one living in um, Israel in those days when Jesus taught like this understood that when you pick up your cross, you don't come back anymore. No one comes down from a cross. No one carries a cross and comes back. They carry a cross up the hill and they're executed on it. Nobody gets in this line, except Jesus did. He did get in this line at the front of it. So we're told in verses 21, we're in Matthew 16 here, that from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must suffer many things and be killed. You might circle that word must. Did I underline it for you on your outline? Yeah. That's an important word. It means that this is necessary. It's not optional. It's not elective. It's not discretionary. Uh, you know, it's not a suggestion. Uh, it's not an outside possibility or even a high possibility. It's a divine necessity, Jesus is saying. They would understand that Jesus was saying that soon enough. So Jesus' death was not a mistake or a tragic twisting of what might have been. It was the purpose of his life. He's letting them know that. Jesus says, must, two times. And Peter, two times, says back to Jesus, not going to happen. Never. This really got under Peter's skin. It was hard for him to believe that this could be possible, this could be true. And it was hard for Peter to watch it when it was possible and it was true. And then Jesus uses that word again, verses 24 and 25. If anyone would come after me, Peter, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There's that word must again. The cross is not just God's plan for Jesus, it's God's plan for you and for me as well. 
The cross is not just something done by Jesus for us. It is also something done, actually given by Jesus to us. The way of the cross is his way, so the way of the cross is our way. It's one of those gifts of the Holy Spirit that we're not so eager to have, the, the cross of Jesus. So when you follow Jesus, this is John Stott's phrasing for it, you find out that suffering is the path to glory, death is the way to life, and weakness is the secret of power. We can think about those words for a long, long time. They're really important words. Peter has become here, as he pushes back at Jesus with his not going to happen, a, a classic picture of Christian immaturity. He's the kind of Christian who thinks that our true life, my true life, and, and you and I thought like this for a long, long time in our lives, has no room for suffering and sorrow and humility and trouble in the cross. There's just no place for them. Who, nobody does get in those lines. Nobody asks for those things. People will say things these days like, he suffered so I don't have to suffer. I have had people say that to me repeatedly over my, over my decades in ministry. Or, when I come to Christ, all my problems in life are going to be fixed. I don't know how long it was for you before you figured out that that wasn't the way it works, and, but everybody finds out pretty quickly that isn't the way it works. It's not the way it works. It's bad theology, it's not true, it's actually a temptation. I, I, um, I think the prosperity gospel and the churches that are committed to the prosperity gospel are fundamentally wrong on this issue and set people up for difficulties um, that are unavoidable in life because they um, avoid this, this teaching of Jesus. They avoid the down direction, avoid the down direction. And then Jesus goes one important step further when he's talking about um, getting over yourself. He doesn't say that just to embrace life's hardships and difficulties and sufferings and even your own mortality, uh, he says something else. So this is verses 38 and 39. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Those follow me for my sake phrases are important not to miss. If you try and live a cross-shaped life without keeping his cross in sight, you won't be able to do it. And it might just turn on you and make you really bitter or angry. You'll do it in order to prove yourself or earn your way or secure yourself or convince everybody else how spiritual you are or, um, or something like that. And you'll end up getting religious. God help us when we get religious. We're terrible when we get religious. We'll get religious and righteous and judgmental and exhausted and we just look down on people around us because we're the ones who sacrifice and they don't and so on. When Jesus says, for my sake, he means live within sight of his mercy. I like the reading from tonight, um, well, well chosen. So, in view of the mercy of God, Romans 12, 1, 
offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. In view of the mercy of God. Stay in view of the mercy of God. Don't lose sight of his sacrifice. I think I told you a week or two ago that that has become a pilgrimage for me, a very um, well-known path. I, I, I ride mountain bikes. I've got my favorite trails up in the woods. I know the trails really, really well by now. I've ridden those trails for a decade. And, um, and I know where every rock and root and rut is. I've hit every one of them. <laughs> I know where they all are. When you, when you stay on a trail a long time, you learn it really well. This is a great trail to stay on. Stay within, go to his cross often. Wear a path out. Make it your primary pilgrimage to go back to the cross and look at him giving his life for you. I think that's what can happen, is meant to happen when we come to communion every week, when we come to his table every week. We're staying within sight of his mercy. I love the words of administration. I think I mentioned this to you. For me, for me, for you. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for you. For you, for you, for you. Stay within sight of his sacrifice. And then a wonderful thing begins to happen when you do that. You find that the iron grip of a self-centered life begins to recede. You let things go. And you find yourself free to make decisions that you could never make before, maybe. To walk away from things that used to have a lock on you. To forget about yourself. To get over yourself. To find your real self. I want to make one more suggestion before I go on to the second part of this. That you should, it's a good thing to be radically cautious about ourselves and radically confident about Jesus. Our self-life always gets in the way. It's my dreams, it's my opinions, I've got so many opinions, it's my feelings, they're so strong. We're so full of ourselves that we're unable to trust him. Could I ask you to be radically cautious about yourself and radically confident in the words of Jesus? even if they cut right into something you desire, you want, you feel, especially if they cut right into something you desire, you want, you feel, especially then. I think that we're so self-confident that that's why we always get into these arguments with Jesus. I mean, we don't argue with him, but we do. So, you know, he'll tell us to do something and we'll say, well, that's really interesting. I'll think about that for a while. And we go away and we think about that for a long, long, or a little while, honestly, a little while, and then we find we stop thinking about it and go back to doing what we want to do. I, I think that is why um, so much of the time in our culture, we come to faith in Christ and then we go out and live like the culture lives. Be radically cautious about yourself, radically confident in Jesus, getting over ourselves. Okay. Here's the second one, getting over our badness. <laughs> yeah, so um, nothing gets us over our badness, I don't think, uh, like repentance. I want to talk to you a little bit about repentance. Repentance is the start of the Christian life, and it's a friend throughout the Christian life. Without repentance, we are told that there is no new life, 
There's no freedom from sin. Without repentance, we are told there's no forgiveness. Without repentance, we will perish, Jesus has told us. So may God give us much repentance. May he bless us with much repentance. Repentance is born out of the gospel, out of the twin truths of the gospel, that you are, here's number one, I've got this on your outline, that you are more, much more flawed than, and lost than you've ever had the eyes to see or the courage to admit. Our brokenness goes really, really deep. I, I've learned to be thankful that God didn't let me see all my brokenness all at one time. It's kind of overwhelming. And the moments when you do see it in a new, fresh depth, um, it's heartbreaking. And you have those moments as your life goes on. It's not just at the beginning of your Christian life. God brings you back to that place again and again. That's the first truth of the gospel. But here's the second one. At the very same time, you are far more loved, far more cherished than you have ever dared to hope. And there come times when you see that with fresh eyes, and it can put you down on your face and make you weep. Why he would love a man like me, or a man or a woman like you, but he does. He does. Those two, side by side, grow repentance. So you repent. You come to Jesus for his mercy and forgiveness and the life he gives. That's how repentance starts. But repentance isn't just a start. It's, it's a friend. It, it walks with you through your life. It's a lifetime habit. A lifestyle of repentance is what scripture encourages us to be. Colossians 3 is one of the core chapters of the Christian life. And Paul is talking about the, uh, the lifestyle of repentance. So here's how he unpacks it. Put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other. For you've stripped off your old sinful nature and all of its wicked deeds. Notice that I've underlined for you there the verbs, um, but not, not the uh, nouns. The nouns are where we hang out when we talk about this, all the things that are on his list of things that he wants us to be done with. But the verbs are really decisive. That's why I underline them for. Again, it's... it's um, it's sharp language. There's no wiggle room here. This is not an option to think about. It's not the 10 suggestions for you to consider during your, your leisure hours or something like that. This uh, is something that is a, is, is a, I'm done with this, appeal to you and me. So if the Christian life has a yes to it, the great yes of the gospel, the Christian life has, along with that yes, a no to it, a no to my old life. I'm done with it. I'm going to leave it behind. No messing with it. That's the lifestyle of repentance. You take off your old clothes. <laughs> and look who gets to do this. Uh, you and I get to do this. Paul says this is something you do. 
There is something that happens in the Christian life, especially gospel churches, that um, we, we are so deeply overwhelmed by, grateful for God's grace, that you end up thinking that God does everything and I do nothing. And so people come to Christ for his mercy and forgiveness and a new life, and, then, and, we, and he gives us this mercy and forgiveness and a new life, and then we just sit there. We just sit there. We don't know what to do with our lives. So oftentimes, again, we just kind of float with the culture and do pretty much what everybody else is doing. We probably clean up a few things in our lives, hopefully clean up a few things in our lives, but basically just float with the culture. And then our lives don't change that much. And we wonder, why am I still doing all the old things that I used to do? How come? And everybody else wonders the same thing. How come? How come all those Christians don't look different than everybody else looks? What is it with us? I think we've lost the down direction in our life. I don't think that uh, we've made room for it. And, you know, I lead you through passages like this, and, and you will be really quick to say, well, that's there, and that's there, and that's there. I mean, it's all over the scripture what I'm talking to you about, the, the down direction. But how come, how come our discipleship processes, and I've been through most of them in evangelicalism, how come we don't make this a major thing, except at the start of the Christian life? How come? What's, what's, uh, how, how'd that happen to us? It's not just us. And it's, you know, it's all over the West, I think. It's actually all over the West. It's all over the, the part of the world where the human liberty project, and liberty means doing what you want, doing what you desire, where the Human Liberty Project has been the, the heartbeat of the culture. Western culture is about that project. I think this is missing all over that part of the world in the Christian churches. That's a thought. I'm just wondering. So Paul paints a very different picture of the Christian life. The, his, his picture in the New Testament is that God's grace creates human effort. It always does this. Grace surges in that direction. It makes you different, want to behave different, act different, think different. God's, God's deeds call forth our deeds. His forgiveness makes us forgiving. God giving to us makes us giving people what we receive wants to get out of us and move on to other people. You're loved and you become a loving person. So that's, I think, the way it works. Dallas Willard's little phrase, it cannot happen without him. He does not do it without us, is I think the way it goes. I like that phrase a lot. So you and I are called to vigorous action, put to death, have nothing to do with, don't be, get rid of, strip off the old life and the old habits, and then put on, then, 
as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together. There is no better set of clothes. Now, I, I don't think that the taking off and putting on is an easy project in life. It can't be done at a single time. It's a lifetime project in our lives. I tend to think of this, uh, um, my best illustration for this, I, I live in an old house, and so you have to do everything to an old house. And when you do everything to an old house, you're always ripping out walls or tearing up floors or something like that. When, when an old house gets rewired, it happens something like this. You've got that old knob and tube wiring in your house, maybe, it, like we've had, and it's dangerous. You don't want it anymore. If, if the gospel comes into a life, it's like a new power box is dropped into the basement of an old house. And now, all of a sudden, you've got power that you never had before. You can go 120 volts. You can go 220 volts. You can go, you know... 15, 20 amp outlets all over the place if you got lots of power. But you still got all that old knob and tube wiring. And it's got to come out. It's got to be pulled out run by run by run, and new wiring's got to be put in to get the power where the power needs to go. That's a great little picture, I think, of what God has you and me up to. So let's uh, say, for example, that um, that I uh, uh, that I'm an that that I'm an angry man. Let's say that I had a tough series of things happen to me in my life, and and um, and it was really difficult. Maybe it was how I was raised. Maybe it was some things that happened along the way, and and it made me really angry. And made me angry at the people who did it and they were really wrong to do it. Life can be very, very difficult. And, um, and let's say I really had a right to be angry. And then I was angry. And then the anger went deeper and it, it seemed that I became an angry person. And now we're years down the road and that anger could just jump out any time. You catch me wrong, wrong way going down Route 65 to the city and cut me off and you're going to hear about it. Or, or, or. You understand what I'm saying? And then I run into the gospel. And I run into the forgiveness of the Lord for angry people. And, and it just crashes on me that who I've been and what I've been doing oh my goodness and he forgives me and he gives me a new start now the next time I run down route 65 to the city and somebody cuts me off I can tell you what I'm going to do I'm going to blow up at him again because I'm wired for anger it's in my bones and it's going to take time to pull it out of my bones it's going to take week after week of me begging the Lord to make me a different kind of man. It's going to take learning how to forgive people who've done wrong to me because it doesn't come naturally to me anymore. I'm wired for anger. 
I'm wired for unforgiveness. All that knob and tube wiring has got to be rerun. It's a lifetime project. But God can do that. It's what the down direction is about. I want all that old wiring out of me. I don't want to be that way anymore. So I wear out a path going back to the cross. I want to stay inside of his mercy. And every time that anger resurfaces in me, I'm going to beg him again to forgive me again and to give me a heart like his and a love like his for people who keep pissing me off. You know, I've, I've got to pray like that and live like that. And, and lo and behold, he'll take an angry guy like me and turn me into a gentle guy and a forgiving guy and a compassionate guy. He can do that with us. It's the down direction that makes it happen. I want to talk to you about getting over your goodness. If I haven't got you yet, this one, this one will really make you mad. <laughs> All right, so this is a strange thing to talk about. But part of the down direction in life is, is a big part of it is this. So Paul's writing in Philippians now, chapter 3, about his confidence in the flesh. Paul's musing back on the way he used to be. Um, confidence in the flesh, the things that I used to do on my own that made my life right. Paul had a long list of them that make your life impressive, worth something, uh, valuable to you, maybe valuable to other. You've got things like that in your life. You work on this. David Brooks uh, for the New York Times wrote an, a column some years ago uh, about this. Um, I want to read to you a paragraph of it. He says, this is an achievement culture, a culture of people striving and trying to win success. The way I express this hunger for success is by two sets of virtues, which you could call the resume virtues and the eulogy virtues. Now, the resume virtues are the things that you bring to the marketplace and which you put on your resume. So they're all the things that are make you really impressive, you know, if you want to present your best face forward, all your accomplishments, all your education, you're going to tell people how smart you are, how competent you are, and everything else, and you've got a list of them. Even if nobody else has a list, you've got a list of these things, so you put them on your resume, and you shop yourself around. But the eulogy virtues are very different. The eulogy virtues are the things people say about you at your funeral. And they don't mention your resume virtues at your funeral. They'll talk about relationships. They'll talk about love. They'll talk about friendships. They'll talk about family. They'll talk about when you were there for them. Talk about how you cared for them. Now we all know that of those two lists, the eulogy virtues are the most important. And the resume virtues are where we spend all our time. That's what we do. That's what Paul was doing. So Paul's got his list of resume virtues. Here it is. This is Philippians 3.5. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I got a great start to my life. Was on the best, on the best team, the tribe of Benjamin. Hebrew born of Hebrews. As to the law of Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul is a very impressive guy. There's no way you or I would meet Paul, get to know Paul, without being really impressed about the kind of man that he was. He was, 
you know, all the right background. He's bragging about his racial background, his tribal background. He's proud of it. One of the modern translations of the Pharisees uh, calls them the serious. Paul was the serious of the serious. He, he's, you know, he's, he's something like a Navy SEAL of the, of the Jewish movement. And he's done all the training. He's gone through everything. Um, I, I know a lot of serious Christians. You do too. I know some really outstanding Christians. I do not know somebody who would ever dare to say, under the law, blameless. Now, I think of Paul... I, I, I do not think of Paul as a man who is given to spin or overstatement. I am. I'm, I'm given to spin and overstatement. I know that about myself. I catch myself doing it all the time. I say, why are you doing that again? Anyway, Paul was not like that. Under the law, blameless? Paul was a, a very impressive man. And then he met Jesus face to face. And everything changed. You remember the story on the way to Damascus to persecute the Christians ready to kill for God. A flash of light and Paul is on the ground, on his face before the crucified and risen Lord of glory. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, Paul. And Paul knew that he was. Right there in that moment, Paul knew his resume was worthless. Didn't amount to anything anymore. Actually, Paul knew that his resume was a problem right there, right then. I like Tim Keller's phrase. I've got it for you on your outline. Sin is not the main problem that screws us up. Sin is not the main reason that people aren't Christians. It's your righteousness. What he means is that Paul always knew that badness was a problem, but he couldn't see that his goodness was a problem. Just think how... how People in our culture hate it when Christians like us look down on them and we think we're right. And, and, and you're really lost. Just think how people hate that and, and what that does. Paul knew that his goodness was a problem. Paul looked at his own life and he was impressed. And so Paul thought, well, God must be impressed too. If you look at your own life and you're impressed with who you are and what you've done and you think God must be pretty pleased with who you are and what you've done, then you think down deep that God owes you. Watch out. It's spiritual poison. It's earning. It's what we call works righteousness. Watch out. It'll kill you. Paul was so proud of his goodness that he couldn't see his badness. James Bryant Smith, um, great guy, Jim Smith. I met him 15 years ago. 
most of my Christian life. I, uh, his book is Embrace, Embracing the Love of God. Is, do I have that title down there for you? Um, that is a really poorly worded title for his book. It's a book about grace. It's one of the best books about grace that I've read. It's really embraced by the love of God. That's what the book is about. I commend it to you. It's a very good book. For most of my Christian life, I related to God on the basis of what I did for him. If I prayed well, studied hard, served much, and sinned little, then I felt pretty reasonably that God was pleased with me. For too long, I was impressed with my commitment to Christ. Now I'm only impressed with Christ's commitment to me. I like that. There's not room in your heart to be impressed with your commitment to Christ and Christ's commitment to you. You must choose what your heart is going to be impressed with. In the moment of this counter, um, Paul does a, a radical reevaluation of his life. And, and, and when he writes about it, he puts it all in economic language, financial language of gain and loss. So whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them refuse in order that I may gain Christ. So he took his resume, his really, really, really impressive resume, and he said, I give it up, I let it go, I lay it down. I've got a little picture there for you. I want to give you the gift of a shredder tonight and suggest that there might be some things in your life that could go into the shredder. Paul dropped his resume into the shredder. When I was, uh, I flunked out of middle school. It's not easy to do. I, I flunked out of college, and then I went to a second college and just skinnied through. And then I got converted and I went to seminary. And um, I was really determined to do differently. After four years out of college, I went back to grad school and seminary, and I was determined to do differently. And I, I, did, uh, I worked really hard, and I did really well, and I got a diploma with a big, certain award on it. Um, you know, when I graduated from college, I never had a single thought about taking that college diploma and putting it on my wall. I just barely made it through. When I graduated from seminary, I went shopping for frames, big frames, you know, to, to hang this thing on my wall so that uh, people, and then this question began to nag at me. Would hanging that thing up on my wall make me more humbly dependent on God or people more, were people going to come into my office and be impressed with me or impressed with the Lord? And I get to choose. So into the shredder. Uh, you know, that doesn't mean that I'm saying good education is a bad thing. Of course, I'm not saying anything like that. I'm, I'm saying do really well, quietly, lay it down, and move on. How about your resume? What do you do with your resume? I remember when we were um, out in uh, 
my uh, first sabbatical out in California with Dallas Willard. There were 40 pastors of us in a room. Uh, I wonder if I've told you this story. You'll recognize it. And um, we were meeting each other on the first night, and Dallas was watching us as we had a mixer. Uh, this is all people who'd been in the parish for at least five years, and this was a this was a, a seminar, a two-week seminar in a monastery on um, spiritual disciplines, and we were all eager. And uh, anyway, we were meeting each other, and then the next day, uh, Dallas asked us what we found out about each other as we met the night before. He's, we said, well, you know, names, locations, churches, maybe families, and stuff like that. And then Dallas said, said I've learned that when pastors get together, um, they always want to share the ABCs. And and like a bunch of idiots, we said, what's that? We learned not to do that with Dallas when he would put little things like that in front of us. We learned very quickly not to do that. He said, oh, it said ABCs. That's attendance, buildings, and cash. And we all just kind of oh, hung our heads like that because it's what we were doing. Into the shredder. Into the shredder. How about your Facebook page or your social media pages? What do they say about yourself, about, about who you are? Do you have lots of posts that, that make you humble <laughs> or, or what? So this is the down direction of your life. You take yourself and then you take your badness and then you take your goodness. You take all three of them and you lay it down, you let it go. You, Learn humility. You give up your old life. You bring it to the Lord. That's what Paul was doing. Remember, he was writing this letter from a Roman jail. God gave him a different kind of resume. And yet, with all the loss of the down direction, Paul says that his life is solidly in the gain category. Why? because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Paul's saying, I've got one great asset, one thing on my resume. The great thing on my resume right now is Jesus, crucified and risen Lord, to know him and be known by him that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I might attain the resurrection of the dead. I, I, I remember when um, my oldest son, uh, we had three boys followed by three girls. When my boys were two or three or something like that, I made them a wooden truck. And, uh, and it was one of my first woodworking projects. It was really uh, cool. It was, a, it was a tractor trailer, about that long the trailer and then about that long the cab, and had little wooden wheels all the way down it and uh, had a removable top on it and was made really sturdy so these kids couldn't destroy it in the first couple of days. And they would get on the back of it and push it around and ride it around. I, I loved seeing them do that. It was, it was really fun. I thought that little tractor trailer truck was going to last forever. I remember the day that my oldest son got his first bicycle. He never looked at that truck again because of the surpassing worth of that bike. He just let it go. That's what Paul is saying, the incomparable value of the greater 
leaves little room for the lesser. Remember the words about Jesus, about the treasure in the field. You cover it up. You go out to your great joy. You sell everything you have to get that treasure. That's what Paul's doing. He's saying, I'm selling it all. Everything I own to gain that treasure, I'm letting it all go. All my badness, all my goodness, all my goodness that's made me so blind to my badness, all me. I'm just letting it go that I might lay hold of him, the one who has laid hold of me. And Paul says it's all gain, sheer blessed gain. That's the down direction. The gift of the down direction um, tonight, I, I give it back to you. You know about it. It's not new to you. So let's talk a little bit. We'll take, we got five or ten minutes. Um, I point out to you that rule of life. I've given to you these every um, week we've been together. Some things, some ways we try to live in our discipleship community that this has to do with the down direction. I'd be glad to talk with you about any of those or um, any the, anything else that I've stirred up here a little bit. Um, and you want to chat a little bit about comments or questions? The down direction in the life of a teen. I'm more concerned about whole life discipleship in the life of the teens. Um, it's a uh, so we're in the market for a new director of children's ministries at St. Stephen's. So we have staff turnover like you guys do, and uh, people leave, and we have to fill the place. And so we're starting to think about that. We also have one of our uh, student ministry. Um, uh, workers, Sarah Bray, who married Paul Cooper, and, and Cooper ran a raid on us and took away Sarah Bray. So anyway, um, she's leaving. Our, so that's a student ministry and a children's ministry, key people on our team that we're now in search process for. Um, we got into in the search committee the other day and started talking about this. We can't just keep pushing forward with the old strategies. We have to ask a really big question. How are we raising our kids, and how can we raise our kids, work with families to raise our kids in a way where they don't leave the faith? They become lifelong disciples of Jesus. So we've taken that question out of the back room, and we put it right in the middle of a couple of key search processes. But it's not just about program ministry in the church. It's about working with families. and It's about creating a counterculture in the church. So we're, we're leaning into this. We would love to have you all lean into this with us. It would be great to have a network of churches that were leaning hard into this question because it's bigger than any one of us. We would really love to do that together. Yeah. Comments, questions? Take a look at the rule of life thing. What do you think of that? You might add some things to this rule of life, some things that seem to be really clear to you about what the down direction might mean in your own life. At last bullet, be faithful servants and trustworthy spiritual leaders to my spouse and family, put their well-being before my own. 
Oh, don't ask my wife how I'm doing on this. <laughs> Do not say no to our spouses without consultation and prayer. Say no to myself first. So, so if someone's going to say no in the family, I get to lead. I, so I'm, I'm, I'm saying this to myself. I'm a dad. Men are called to headship in the family. Here's some headship. Um, if, if, if there's something in the family that has to be said no to, I get I get to be the front of that line. I get to be in the that's the down direction. Down direction. What do you think? Please. How do you avoid arrogance? How do you avoid arrogance? Well, it's really tricky, isn't it? The, the fun joke on that is that the church really had a humble servant among them and gave her a, an award for being the most humble servant in the church. And then next Sunday she wore it and they took it away from her. <laughs> I had to go back and take it away from her. So, you know, I think, I think it's like that. Even, even our virtues, even real virtues can become a source of pride or arrogance or something like that. And humility among them which some ancient Christian thinkers think actually that humility is the queen of the Christian virtues, the central one, because it opens the door to all the rest of them. That's, that made me think when I, when I heard that. You think love is the greatest of the Christian virtues. You tend to, we tend to think like that. But th that sentence really caught me. Um, but you can really work on humility and then you get immediately kind of a little bit proud that I'm becoming more humble, you know, or something like that. So the best way that I have found, and I'm going to talk to you about this next week, or borrowing a little bit from next week, is to be in the kind of community where we're watching over one another in love. I can't say these things by myself. I can't. So I need, I need people alongside me that I'm accountable to and who I've given permission to speak to me, where we're learning to speak to each other about how we really are and who we really are, and I'm welcoming that in my life. So in my life, I'm, I'm in a, a network of small groups. I'll tell you about them next week, and, and, um, and I've been in small groups with Jonathan. I've loved being in small groups with Jonathan, and I go regularly for spiritual direction. And I'll tell you more about that next week, too. I think it's part of guarding your heart, but my quick answer to you is you can't do this alone because we're just too vulnerable. I'm, I'm, I can see pride in you much quicker than I can see it in myself. So I need people to be alongside me. One more. Liberty. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we have a bad understanding of what freedom actually is. We do. There's a Dominican theologian named Surveys Pinkers who I really like who says that Christian freedom is freedom for excellence. It's, it's, the, it's the willingness to accept a certain kind of constraint for the sake of something greater. And this, the down direction seems to me like these are the constraints that we must accept if we're going to pursue the excellence that the vision of Christ gives us. 
Like that's why Paul and you know Philippians chapter three says, "I'm willing to count it all as loss, and I'll, I'll like in order that I might in any by any means attain to the resurrection." You know. So I think that's. Um, and there's, there's a, there's a, I think there's a, a loss that we have there when we, we don't have it quite in context. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah, the, the why behind any of the directions is to become more like Christ, is, is to be conformed to his image. That's what we're trying to do. This is, the, the old word for it is holiness. The modern word for it is spiritual formation or discipleship. Um, the biblical word for it is Christ-likeness of life. And, and that's where we're heading. That's what we're after. That's what we hunger for. That's what we long for. That your, your understanding about liberty, your reference to that, um, there is an old definition of it and a new definition of it. I'll just leave you with a book recommendation. I'm reading a book by Patrick Deneen called Why Liberalism Failed. If I got the title right, I, I think. It just came out, yep, and it's got rave reviews. Why liberalism failed, it doesn't mean what you just think it means. It doesn't mean, it's not, this is not a rant. He's a Notre Dame professor, uh, a very bright guy, a political science professor. It's not a rant from the right against the left uh, in American culture. Liberalism, in his definition of the word, is the whole American project that goes back 500 years that involves conservatives and liberals who are pursuing shared pursuit of liberty. But his bottom line on this is liberalism has failed because it succeeded. And what it did was it redefined liberty and became hugely successful at attracting people to this new definition of liberty, my wants, my desires, my me, my self-life, and turned loose and so on. And it has destroyed community in the, pro in the process destroyed collaboration community, the, the, the ancient virtues, the old virtues along the way. So it's, it's a really good read, not too long a book. I commend it to you. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little bit ahead of you in the book, and um, I'll keep at it. Okay, thank you, folks. Yeah, one. Patrick Deneen, D-E-N-E-E-N.